Turn with me again to Mark chapter 10. I feel like we've been in Mark 10 for a little while. We're going to be in it one last week. Mark chapter 10, we'll be looking at the last little section there, 46 through 52. This is a pretty famous story. So as we look at it, let's go to the Lord and ask for His help with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to this bit of your scripture about a blind man, even in you, we oftentimes come to the scriptures blindly, wishing they were about us, about our glory, about what we're owed. But we are owed nothing. You are owed all the glory. And yet, in your infinite grace and mercy to us, your people, you have given us your holy word that we might grow in wisdom and stature, that we might worship you more, that we might do what we ought to do concerning your commandments, that we might better know you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, you would help us because we are fickle. We turn aside very easily. Straighten our path that leads to you this morning, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. As I read through this passage about a blind man, it made me think of a painting by a Dutch painter named Peter Bruegel. If you speak Dutch, I'm really sorry, because that's probably not how that is pronounced, but I'm going to have to run with it. And the painting is the name, The Blind Leading the Blind. I encourage you to check it out at your own time or whenever. The Blind Leading the Blind. And in it, there's a picture of six men in the the foreground of the picture. And each one is apparently blind. And they are either in or heading to a pit that is on the right side of the painting. One man has already fallen into the pit. Another man is in the act of falling into the pit. And the one next to him, to the left of him, is reaching out with a stick as if he's about to lose his balance and start falling himself. On the other end of the spectrum, all the way to the left, the last man is just kind of seen kind of rambling through the countryside, minding his own business. The next guy, you can tell, is starting to realize that something is up. And the next guy knows something is wrong. He has this look of alarm on his face. It's a painting, and of course it could be further analyzed and stared at, and uh, there's lots of things that you could say at it, but it seems clear to me, considering the historical context that Bruegel found himself in, that there was definitely some political significance, some religious significance to it as well. When I read the passage for this week, I thought of this painting as our passage again deals with this issue of blindness, and it deals with it directly as there is an actual blind man in it but it also deals with it in a more metaphorical sense as well coupled that of course with the fact that our country is going through this transitions election of a new president but with or without the election the analogy makes sense we live in a culture where the blind is leading the blind those who trust in man to save them are telling others the best way to find salvation which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. 
He doesn't have to be man telling man where to find salvation and being trusting in man. It could be anything that we put in front of God. We read that in our catechism question today. We we looked at a very the very pointed passages in previous weeks, the children coming to Jesus, the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, the disciples thinking that they were the great ones. All these passages show us that we put other things in front of Jesus. In our passage today, we're going to see a blind man who puts nothing before him. In fact, he risks everything to follow him. And this passage stands out for a number of reasons that we're going to get into, but I think it represents this last look of Jesus as he enters into the city of Jerusalem and he begins this last week of his life. So it's very significant for us. As we look at this passage, I want us to pay careful attention to how we as believers are being challenged because the faith of this blind man should challenge us in many ways. I also want to consider how it calls us to service, to follow Jesus. So as we look at this passage, I'll divide it into three ideas. First, the mercy of Jesus. Second, the risk of following Jesus. And then lastly, calling the blind to follow. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 and following. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and he, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. This is God's words. You may be seated. So quickly, just a bit of context as we come to this passage. Remember the last several chapters, Jesus has been actively heading towards Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. He knows that this is going to be his last days on earth as he heads towards Jerusalem. As we get to our text today, they get to the city of Jericho. We all are familiar with Jericho from Old Testament fame, the walls of Jericho coming down and so forth. Well, Jericho is almost due south of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did a whole lot of his ministry there by the Sea of Galilee. And it's almost exactly due east of Jerusalem. The road between Jericho and Jerusalem was one that was often traveled in those days, as it just made sense to kind of follow the river down from the Sea of Galilee and then over to Jerusalem. So it was often travel. And it was also one that bandits and characters of that like loved to work because it just was conducive to that sort of thing. It was even called the way of blood by many of the people in that day because of the danger that it posed to the everyday traveler. 
Not only did you have those crazy types of people to contend with, but there was just the elements by themselves that were hard. Going from Jericho, which is about a thousand feet below sea level, to Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet above sea level, all in the short distance of 15 miles, is a pretty harrowing trip on foot. It's not an easy trip. So Jesus' last 15 miles of journeying would be all uphill against all odds, all of this intensity building, the tasks that lay before him, taking the sins of his people, becoming the sacrificial lamb for them, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is on his final ascent to Jerusalem. Yet all the while, he still has time for people like Bartimaeus. That brings us to the first point, the mercy of Jesus. Look with me again at verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and when and as they were leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, and son Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. So you kind of kind of get the picture here. This last 15-mile stretch of road that was between Jericho and Jerusalem, Jesus is getting ready to go toe-to-toe with these authorities to which Jesus was willing to submit himself to. It wasn't as if he was trying to hide at this point. He was going right into the maw of the beast. The disciples know that this conversation or confrontation is about to occur. Really, most people that knew about Jesus, that knew about what was going on in his life, knew what was about to take place. Jesus was going into the place where people were actively looking to kill him. It wasn't a secret that Jesus had made waves with the religious authorities all the way from Capernaum to Jerusalem. And by this time, for Jesus to be willing to walk into Jerusalem, it's kind of like putting your hand right into a hornet's nest. Don't act surprised when you get stung. So when we read with his disciples and a great crowd, you kind of get what's going on here, right? Jesus is in this small town of Jericho, and not only are his disciples with him, but there's this kind of this crowd that's following behind him. The Passover is nearing, and so people are starting to kind of trickle into Jerusalem anyway. So it would be natural for there to be these crowds of folks traveling together. But yet, think about it. If you're one of these people and you know that this this guy who calls himself the Son of Man, who's done all these miracles, wouldn't it be cool to go ahead and go with him instead of just going on by yourself or just with any other group? To walk with this person who calls himself the Son of Man. So Jesus has this big following. It almost reminds me of like a boxer walking to the ring after months of training. And he has this big entourage surrounding him as he walks to the ring for his final confrontation. Well, there's that. And then you have this other person that is along the road, positioned perfectly to do his daily job, which is begging. He was on the road, which is on the way out of town. All the travelers would have to pass by him. And he hears, because the crowd is just loud, it's a crowd and they're all talking, he hears that Jesus is in the crowd. And just another note that I find interesting, many of the characters in the Gospels, particularly in this Gospel, are just nameless characters. We've read about a lot of them, the rich young ruler, the demon-possessed man, the man with the withered hand, and so forth. This man is named Bartimaeus. His father is named 
Timaeus. And I think I have, I have lots of thoughts, actually, as to why this is, but we aren't really told why this is. I'd like to think that Bartimaeus was known to later Christians as part of the church, so reading this would be significant to those first and second century Christians. We don't know that for sure. Whatever was the case, it was normal for beggars like Bartimaeus and others to be near the road. It was normal for people just to pass by them. But this situation was altogether different. Bartimaeus heard what was going on and he seized on this moment. Look with me at 47 and 48. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So again, get the picture. We might expect this beggar to cry out and ask for money, right? Think about beggars. What are they asking for? They want money to do whatever it is that they need to do. I think of a person, and you know, we see them today. It's not like beggars are an odd thing for us to see. They may have a sign that says they want some money for food or for whatever that they need. Bartimaeus doesn't want Jesus' coin. He wants mercy. Mercy, by definition, is not getting what you deserve. When you ask for mercy, you're asking to get something that you don't deserve. Has Bartimaeus come to an understanding then of what it is that he deserves? That's a really good question. For him to ask for mercy rather than anything else, maybe he knows. He knows what he deserves and he knows the one who he's in contact with. It's almost as if this whole interaction has been planned from the foundations of the earth. The entourage tries to stop him. You get the picture, right? Bartimaeus is crying out. This really important person is walking. We need to tell him to be quiet so he's not bothering Jesus. He cries out even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. And we know what that means. We've heard these words, Son of David, before. I think it's important to say it again. Son of David is this covenantal distinction. The Son of David deserves to sit on the throne of David. For all eternities, the promise that God gave to David himself. Jesus is not only able to give Bartimaeus the mercy that he seeks, but he has the absolute authority as the eternal son of David, David's Lord, yet David's son, to give Bartimaeus nothing or to give him everything. Now think about that for just a minute. I want you to start thinking about your own relationship with Christ, whether you're here as a believer this morning or as an unbeliever. Christ is the infinite giver of grace and mercy. And the opportunity arises, this Jesus, and Bartimaeus knows he's not just you know, some worker of tricks. He calls him the son of David. He begs for mercy from him. He has the opportunity to ask Jesus for something. And what does he ask him for? Mercy. Now to be sure, mercy, the mercy that Bartimaeus is begging Jesus for is directly related to his sight, to be sure. Bartimaeus had a condition. That condition was absolutely debilitating. He had to beg for everything that he had. But Bartimaeus is asking for much more because only one can give sight to the blind. Only one can make the lame to walk. 
What did we read from Isaiah 61? Only one can bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives. Isaiah speaks of only one who can grant those who mourn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. This is that one who Isaiah talked about. And how is it that one who begs for something doesn't later deserve or deserve later to be called an oak of righteousness? He is the one. Think about think about Bartimaeus's condition. He is the very image of sin's grip on the earth of the. The sin on the earth has caused this condition of blindness. It has caused him to beg for mercy. And now he can have forgiveness of that sin and be given the very righteousness of the Son of God. It reminds me of Joel chapter 2, verse 32, another prophecy concerning Jesus. And it says this, and these words are words that you know. And it shall come to pass... That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel knew he looked forward to that time when Jesus would be born and that people would call upon his name and be saved. And now it's here and Bartimaeus is calling upon the name of the Lord. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If you read ahead into chapter 11... We have a group of people also crying out to the Lord. They're crying out, Hosanna, which means God save us. So again, consider your relationship with Jesus. Let me ask you as a believer, how often do you call upon the mercy of Jesus? Because to do so is to acknowledge two things. To our Lord. First, I am undeserving. Second, Jesus is able to give me mercy. And our tendency is to think, when we read things like this, our tendency is to think, oh yeah, that story. Tell me something that actually helps me today. That's, I already did that. I already went to Jesus and I already got saved. Now I need other things to help me. And if you tend toward doing that and saying that, go back then and sit where Bartimaeus is sitting at the beginning of this story because you're starting to think that you're owed something. We never get beyond our need for the mercy of Jesus Christ. We needed it the first time that we called upon His name and were saved, and we need it today because you haven't done anything today to deserve His love. You haven't. You have to beg for His mercy. You are loved by Him. What do we read from Isaiah 61? We are here to display His glory. He calls us oaks of righteousness, plantings of the Lord. You are loved by Him because you are His, the one that He came to save. Now, call upon Him daily. Ask for His mercy. And what about if you're an unbeliever? And you're seeing this and you're hearing this. Maybe you've come to the point of thinking, okay then... What's the catch? And I think believers even can get trapped there from time to time as we consider the mercy of the Lord. I want to follow Jesus, but surely it costs something. 
what I've heard many times, and maybe you're thinking that too. Yeah, it does. Costs everything. And that brings us to the next point, the risk of following Jesus. Look with me at verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. So again, just picture this whole thing. Jesus is heading right into this place that is going to be absolute confrontation from the get-go for Jesus. It's going to end in his death. He's surrounded by this crowd of people who are going with him, some probably just to see that happen. And this blind beggar over here starts shouting, which wasn't uncommon for happen, but he cried out to Jesus specifically, giving him the title, Son of David, and crying out for mercy, not money, not food, mercy. And Jesus, who hears his people, who knows them all by name, stops and has the people call Bartimaeus to come to him. It's one of the most inspiring moments in the New Testament to me. This blind man, just begging that Jesus would stop and help him, gets the mercy that he begs for. Someone walks up to him, you can picture this, and says, take heart, get up, he is calling for you. And notice the response of Bartimaeus, verse 50. In throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. He throws off his cloak and springs up and goes to Jesus. The language here reminds me of the day after Halloween. Now, Now, stay with me here. My kids have all this candy after Halloween, right? And, they, and I find rappers all over the house after Halloween. It's as if the kids, in their excitement to get the prize, the candy, whatever is in there, they unwrap and they just cast aside the wrapper as if it's just nothing and start eating the candy. They get to the prize. The wrapper is a distant memory to them. They have jumped headfirst into the candy. And I see the trail all over the house, the trail of their of their joy and excitement. This man, this blind man, Bartimaeus, he is calling to you, they said. This blind man casts off his cloaks, his cloak, like one of my kids littering in the house after Halloween. But this isn't a candy wrapper that Bartimaeus is getting rid of. This blind man's cloak was his bed during the day, was his blanket at night, his protection from the wind and the elements. Without it, this is what he has. This is is his whole thing. Without it, he would be at risk. With it, there's at least some protection from the harshness of his lifestyle, of everyday life. Without it, he has nothing. And if he casts it off, it's not like he can go look for it. When we follow Jesus, there is risk, to be sure, Now, we know that there's ultimately no risk. We know this, right? That if we fully trust in him, there is no risk. He is the absolute sovereign of the world. When we follow Jesus, we are exchanging the treasures of this earth, which amount to absolutely nothing, for the treasures of eternal life, which shall never perish. However, in our earthly reality, in this present dark world that we live in, following Jesus does seem risky sometimes means that you have to cast off many things that the world readily accepts as true. It means that you have to 
cast off the cares of this world, to cast them on to Christ instead, a man who lived 2,000 years ago. As believers, we know that Jesus still lives. He is alive. He is risen. But understand the risk. And I think it's this risk that many times leads the churchgoer, people that are everyday church attenders, to just kind of go back to the world. What we are seeing more and more in evangelicalism is this desire to satisfy the questions and the criticisms of the world. More and more. The world expects a particular thing from the church. We really wish the church would be like this. And rather than consult God's word for wisdom on the world's questions, the church many times has said, sure, if that many people say yes, then how can we say no? The word of God is seen as antiquated, in need of an update, I've heard people say. I've had people who claim to be Christians say to me, of course I believe the Bible, but it has to be interpreted in light of our current culture. So you're saying you don't believe the Bible, is what you're telling me. So then rather than take God at his word, they just make another God, a more palatable version of his word to go with it. And if you think this is new, if you think this is an, a current American concept that is just now coming on to the history of the church, go just back and read ancient history. Start reading in about the middle of the first century, you know, right after Jesus died, and read all the way up through church history today. And you can just take your pick. Any 10-year period, you're going to find something. It's been happening for hundreds of years. It will continue to do so. Because there's risk. For Bartimaeus to throw off his cloak, to go to Jesus, is for him to say, all my cares, all my concerns, all my safety and comfort, all of my social acceptability, all of those things, I cast off and I come to you. So when I say that following Christ will cost you everything, it is the truth. To follow Jesus, you have to take him at his word. There is risk. For the Christian, as you read and you learn his word, you see this more and more clearly. There's no middle ground in the word of God. There's no place to rest and to think, I'll just sit here and everyone will be happy. No, there's none of that. Those who follow Jesus are on one side, and on the other side are those for whom the Father will say, I Never knew you. There's no waiting period. There's no time to say, you know what? Let me just see how this is going to play out. Let me let me see which one is worse before I really make a decision. There's no fence to sit on when it comes to Christianity. The day is coming for each of us when our time on earth is done. We'll be face to face with the Father. And He'll either see you as an oak of righteousness... Not your own, of course, but because you've been given the robe of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, or he will see you as a son and daughter or daughter of disobedience because you've chosen to follow the world and you've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Thankfully, we are shown here the result of coming to Jesus. That brings me to the last point. 
calling the blind to follow. Look with me at verses 51 and 52. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And we all know the question he's going to ask. We all know what he's going to ask of Jesus, right? He just, he wants to see. Sure, he wanted mercy and that's what he begged for. But the mercy that he desires most was to see. He didn't deserve vision. If he did, it wouldn't be called mercy. It would be called a wage. It would be something that he was owed, right? And what do we read in Scripture is our wage. The wages of sin is death. What is Jesus coming to give? Life. Not because we're owed it, but because he is good. Jesus says to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now we may want to think here, some people do, see Bartimaeus did something for him to be healed. He had this whole faith thing. But we can read many places about this same faith that Bartimaeus had. This faith is every single time. It's called a gift of God. It's not from works. It's so that no one, like Bartimaeus here, can boast. Do you think that after hearing Jesus... That Bartimaeus would say, you know what? I can see now because I had faith. No, he's going to say, I can see because of Jesus. If it had been for his own effort, he would have picked up his cloak and then went on his own way. But what do we see him do? Instead, when Jesus told him to go his own way, it just so happened that his own way was to follow Jesus to Jerusalem. He was no longer blind physically for sure. But we will meet Bartimaeus one day in glory because he was made alive in Christ that day. If you think back to the painting that I mentioned earlier, I think it's very much a picture of the world, the blind leading the blind. It only leads to one result. Every man in that picture, were you to continue watching that picture, we were given that liberty, would end up in that pit. There's no secrets except for the fact that as they're falling into the ditch the second after the second person there's a picture of a church it's right in front of the one who's just about to fall and the artist didn't do that on accident he's like oh i just think i'll put a church here it was to symbolize the only one who can, who can keep you from stumbling into that pit. And that pit's not some little ditch that you'll be able to crawl out of. That pit is a chasm that separates man from his creator. Those who chose to call upon themselves to be saved. And so the question for you, church, is what are we pointing people to? As the people of God, who is it that we are pointing people to? Are we just the blind leading the blind? Worse, are we people who have sight, but we're leading them into a pit by preaching a gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ? If someone were to look at your life and your ministry, would they say, that's just the blind leading the blind? It's not a question to make you feel bad. It's a question to call you to action. 
If you're pointing the lost to anything or anyone other than Jesus, they are headed for trouble. And when you point them to Jesus, you point them to the one who willingly walked into trouble. He traveled that place called the way of blood so that you might experience the mercy of God. So let me encourage you to share them the words of Joel the prophet. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's the only name that you can call upon to be saved. In conclusion, if you're an unbeliever this morning, I share with you those words that we just read. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. If you're trusting in anything else, it is the blind leading the blind. And if you're a believer, cry out for the mercy of God. Cast off your cloak and follow Jesus. One day, we'll follow him perfectly. We will. It's going to be glorious. But until that day, we must daily beg for his mercy. We must cast aside the cares of this world. Cast them onto our Savior. We must show then others that same truth. Show them our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, may it never be said of us that we are the blind leading the blind. Lord, help us. We beg now for your mercy as we live on this earth that only seems to get more difficult to us. But for you, it's... It's all part of your wonderful plan. And so, Lord, help us to seek you for truth, for light, for justice, for righteousness, so that you will be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.